Glad you can join us this evening. Uh, I'm Chris, one of the ministry associates here at Lighthouse, and it's been a while since we uh, looked at the book of Romans together. Um, last week, uh, when Pastor Allen preached on Colossians 1, 24 to 29, we looked at kind of uh, where we're headed as a fellowship group, um, but we're resuming our series in the book of Romans today. And so let me begin with a recap of what we covered last time and where we're headed. At the end of chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, um, uh, but Pastor intern Keith preached on the reality of believers being caught up in this uh, internal battle with remaining sin. We are wretched still inside, yet acknowledge that we're justified and redeemed. Your old self or part of you before Christ still comes out and rears its ugly head in a way that's not pleasing to God. And this constant war, battle for holiness sometimes feels like taking one step back before being able to move forward two steps. So if Romans 7 showed us the new struggle when dealing with, uh, when dealing with indwelling sin, Romans 8 focuses on the raw power of the Holy Spirit working in us to then confidently press forward. After all, we are in union with Christ past struggles and sins that hurt others, stupid and unwise choices in the past and the earthly consequences of those choices and actions. But now there is grace for the life and days ahead for those who are in Christ. This passage is nothing short of a dazzling spectacle. Uh, Romans 8 is a a paramount picture of gospel reality, a peak of unrivaled uh, height in the Bible where one simply marvels at the height, the breadth, and the depth of the gospel. Uh, We're brought to one of the highest vantage points in the entire letter. Here is the crescendoed climax of Paul's magnum opus. And speaking of Romans, the late English minister John Stott once said, it's as if we have finally reached the summit And an enormous vista full of the wonders of God's gifts to his people opens before us. We should approach it with appropriate thanksgiving and awe. Beloved, this passage, this chapter ought to evoke that kind of affection. Fan into flame our heart's assurance that we stand secure in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'll read our passage, and then we'll begin our time with a word of prayer. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, help us to behold wonderful and beautiful things this evening as we approach your word. May we view your word tonight as a comforting stream of water amidst a lush, vibrant meadowbrook. May our hearts brim over the abundant peace and mounds of joy upon joy. Help us with your spirit to turn our eyes upon Jesus, that the things of earth and worldly flesh may grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Several days ago, uh, an interesting declaration was made on the Praxis Facebook page. By who? Uh, None other than Praxis President Young and Vice President Yang. What was this public emphatic declaration? That all anime lovers must openly expose themselves in order to be added to a new anime group that's being formed to organize a watch party. But it came with a huge caveat. List an anime series or show you think is overrated. You could see the potential hurdle in such a request. And no one wants to be the mean guy or gal and call out what they think is a lame anime series. And by doing so, insinuate or suggest that a fellow Praxis member has poor taste in entertainment. You don't want to hurt their feelings. Some of you also may not want to be met with potential disapproval. Like it's some socially uncool or something to reveal yourself as an anime lover. But guess what happened? Over the hills and far away, anime lovers came to stay. All of you came out of the woodworks. You came out of your fanboy, fangirl closets in bold confidence. Not only confessing your identity as an anime lover, but boldly taking a stand on which anime is overrated. What kind of mindset does it take to publicly declare yourself a fanboy or fangirl for anything? For one, a person who is unashamed about his or her passionate forms of entertainment. Kind of like me when it comes to K-dramas, or one dude in praxis who shall not be named when it comes to IU. But I believe there's a f- another fundamental reality at play here. Because that post made it a safe space for you to comment and be accepted. You realize that there is now no condemnation for anime lovers in praxis. No sentence of judgment or punishment by shame. No matter what anime you admitted to watching and concluded was overrated. Why? Because you'll be accepted by others in this new group being formed. There will be no shame for your collective support group. You are in unity with each other. Together for the watch party, for anime lovers in this select group that's being formed, there is no condemnation. Well, in Romans chapter 8, this evening, those two very same words inspire hope and confidence in the life of the believer that loves God and seeks to grow in love for God. Chapter 8 begins with no condemnation 
And it's bookended by the concluding words at the end of the chapter, speaking about no separation from the love of God. In our passage, we will be looking at a magnificent truth and the key idea that that permeates uh, the words of the first 11 verses in this chapter this evening is found in your outline. The key idea we're going to look at is that the Holy Spirit is our great hope and confidence in possessing new life with Christ. Our first point is that the Spirit guarantees life for you, verses 1 through 4. We learn from the first four, four verses that grace succeeds where law fails because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul is not trying to scold you here, but has a tone of lifting you up to see uh, the, the why, that why this is such good news. He's adopting the tone, the best is yet to come. How do I know this? Well, just look at how our passage begins. If, if there was any, any, any doubt, fear, uncertainty in your relationship with God, any cloudy conceptions as to what comes after you've been justified already, Paul prevents, uh, presents us with a bigger picture, a clear vantage point. The statement in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, pretty much says it all. The word now means now, today, real time, live right here in the sanctuary, kind of right now. God's past verdict of justifying you, that stands even today. You don't have to sit here thinking, I'll know I'm right with God when I'm in heaven. And yes, we long, we hope for heaven. We yearn and eagerly await eternal life in the new heavens and new earth with our Savior. But you don't have to wait until you get there to have assurance of where you stand before God. Assurance of salvation can be had today. Look at the text. No condemnation means you do not and cannot fall under God's wrath and penalty for sin again. You just can't. There's there's no qualifiers, but if you, nor are there exceptions like, well, how about under no circumstances and for all time. If you are united with Christ through faith, it's already been decided. It's been settled. God says what he means and means what he says. And that should give us great confidence because God is in the business of saving lost rebels and transforming them into redeemed saints. But words without substance doesn't inspire hope. Promise without proof comes off as cheap talk at best, which is why Paul doesn't leave it at that. The pile of hope heaped upon hope that casts all doubt away is in what follows in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit is better and greater than the law of sin and death. That is the contrast that is being made here. But what is the law of the spirit of life? And what is the law of sin and death? Well, in setting up this grand comparison, the common word is law here. But Jesus isn't talking about two different kinds of laws. He's talking about one law, the Mosaic law. And now we know that the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, was was good. It was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and it wasn't evil, right? The commandments reflected the holiness of God and how, as God's covenant people, Israel, will live set apart from the other nations and peoples who don't know God or worship him. But we know they failed to obey. They, they broke the law. Um, no sooner had the tablet of the law been brought to them, their heart fashioned an idol that they had resolved in their hearts to live for. 
They enslaved themselves to this idol for the promise of happiness and fulfillment. What the law did as a governing principle was put mankind's sin on stage to see. It was the venue to demonstrate and broadcast the reality of sin because sin is made more evident through the law. So when, the, when, when given the law that we can't possibly obey perfectly on our own, we demonstrate our need for Christ. In fact, we are governed by the power to break the law of God because everyone without Christ is, is governed by something else, the power of sin and death. And in this way, the law serves as a tutor, a teacher to help people see their need for Jesus. For Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So where's Paul going here with Romans 8? He's saying that the law is in the realm of the Holy Spirit, or the law is in the realm of the power of sin and death. A law is essentially a governing principle. We have laws. It can serve to condemn and lead to punishment if you fail to obey and live up to the law. It can embolden you to rebel against it, too. But in the realm of those who are in Christ, the law that Christ fulfilled is now practically demonstrated through righteous living in Christians. We, as believers, can obey God by the power of the Spirit. You see, the law can play a positive role or a negative role. It all hinges on whether the law, in connection with sin and death, or if the law is in relation to the Spirit. Example. A chef knife in a kitchen can be used to produce fantastic, aesthetically pleasing culinary masterpieces. But take that chef's knife out of the realm and context of the kitchen and place that chef's knife in the cafeteria or locker room of a high-security prison with hardened criminals. And it'll lead to disastrous results. A chef's knife plays a positive role in the hands of a skilled chef in the kitchen, but in a criminal looking to harm someone, it plays a negative one. The law then, while good, only results in death apart from the spirit. It only leads to sin and death. But that principle of sin and death is old news, and in the past, if you are in Christ, in fact, it has been replaced with life. Don't lose sight that it is the spirit who has given this life to you and me. The same power of the Spirit that created life out of nothing in Genesis 1-2. That's the same power operating in your life. That's why you've been liberated from sin and death. You have new life through the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was the one, the person, the agent that brought you into union with Christ. So how does this liberation take place? How are we freed and emancipated from the power of sin and death? Verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Well, the law couldn't do it. That much is clear. It's been weakened. But what does this actually even mean? Well, keep in mind, Paul just mentioned the law of sin and death. And here he speaks about a negative aspect of the law in relation to the flesh. When we juxtapose the law with the flesh, the image is made clear. The comparison makes sense because our, our sinful flesh, the law, is considered weak now. When you are weak, it speaks of limitation, incapability to achieve a specific result. 
It's like trying to breathe underwater. Pretty soon you will drown, right? We were meant as humans to breathe underwater only for a short period of time, not indefinitely. Now you might say Chris's lungs functions perfectly fine and is able to process oxygen so he, he might continue to breathe as a human being. But Chris's lungs were incapable and was subject to limitations when it came to processing oxygen to survive underwater. It is clear that Chris's lungs, his body was weakened by being submerged underwater. Trying to live underwater with the lungs we have is like trying, or like the law trying to save. Freedom from condemnation that we already possess. We can forget that we now stand as uncondemned men and women, for we are in Christ. Say, for example, in my own sinful immaturity, I crack a very insensitive joke that hurts Pastor Allen's feelings. So I confess before God and ask for his forgiveness. I initiate a reconciliation process with my dear brother. I apologize and share the specifics of, of what I said that was unkind and loving with my words. And I ask for forgiveness so we can be buddy-buddy again. But let's say the next day, the next week, the, the next month, throughout the year, Chris continues to profusely apologize and ask for forgiveness. He hasn't gotten over the shame and feels condemned. Even after the process of reconciliation, Chris just keeps bringing it up, telling Alan he's sorry. Alan, I'm so sorry I said you need to go to the gym and work out more. That was so insensitive of me. Will you please forgive me of what I said a month ago, a year ago? You would expect him to be weirded out. Uh, that's in the past. I've already forgiven you and forgot about that. Well, what's happening when we act in a similar way? We bring things up over and over because we still keep a record of wrong and feel like we have to atone for ourselves or do penance. And that's how we sometimes approach our relationship with God. We feel like we have to do something more, otherwise we're still condemned. And at the heart of this, we forget we stand before God as those freely forgiven. So let me ask you, Praxis, are you experiencing guilt and shame over your past sin, your mistakes, the hurtful things you've said and done towards others? And if so, what are they? What is it in your life that keeps being dragged up from the past that leads you to feel the sentence of shame, the finger pointed that you're going to be judged? What are those debilitating words of condemnation you hear that's crowding out the liberating words of God. If you have Christ, heed these words of encouragement. Share this hope with brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, who are currently wallowing in despondency and shame. And what is this hope? What is this encouragement we are to preach to ourselves and daily to others? That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's gospel talk. Well, it doesn't stop there. This isn't just a feel-good mantra or silver lining in Paul's playbook of encouraging others. The purpose of Jesus dying on the cross and taking pun the punishment we deserve was so that we might no longer be condemned, but there's more. There's more. Not only are we justified by faith, not only is our position with Christ changed, the gospel actually changes us in everyday life as believers. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, I know how these verses can initially sound. Oh, hold up. Wait just a minute. Wasn't Jesus who, uh, the, Jesus, the one who said he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it? Uh, what's this then of us fulfilling the law? 
Or maybe you're thinking, I, I thought only Jesus could fulfill the law, the requirement of the law. Everyone else falls short, right? Uh, Romans? Well, let me explain. Uh, God doesn't merely justify us through Christ by declaring us righteous. He, o- he actually sanctifies us by making us grow in righteousness. Sanctification always follows justification. Uh, sanctification is distinct but never disconnected from justification. He doesn't say the requirement of the law is fulfilled for us, which would be justification. He doesn't say the requirement of the law is fulfilled by us. That's self-justification. He says it's fulfilled in us. And that means God's work in us. He's talking about practical righteousness, the fruit of justification, the process of change and growth to be more like Jesus after you're justified. Justification speaks of your position in relation to, to, to relationship to Christ, but sanctification speaks of your progressive conformity to Christ. So how does this instruct us? Let's get practical. Well, it means the goal of salvation isn't just to get into heaven. It has to do with holiness. It has to do with real transformation in your life that now trends on a divergent path from the previous way that you lived and walked. Those in Christ walk differently. The word walk here isn't the same as run. Ask me if I run. I'll say yes, I bought running shoes so I can walk in them. Are you impressed? No. Of course not. That's absolutely unremarkable. Just about everyone walks. It's the normal pace of people's movement from point A to point B. How they move about in the daily course of their life. You don't need special shoes for that. Don't expect kudos or reward for what's expected to be normal. And that's that's the thing about Paul's use of the word here. Walk. It's a metaphor to describe the steady, normal progress one makes in a spiritual direction according to the Spirit. A spiritual metaphor. The normal progression in spiritual growth that's expected. It's normal and to be expected in the Christian life. That's why when a Christian friend or maybe you're know you on a date and you get asked, asked, how's your walk? What's your walk look like? You don't answer, well, my normal pace is 2.5 miles per hour. I have about an average gait with slightly overpronated heel strike. No, man, you don't say that. Why? Because you know the question is getting at something. You're being asked about your spiritual growth and progress, which is expected for someone who calls himself or herself a Christian. The trajectory of spiritual growth is expected to be trending upward over a long period of your life. Your spiritual walk is about your spiritual life, and this is what Paul continues to build upon as he distinguishes what it is to have life with the Spirit, and life without the Spirit. This brings us to our second point. He now conforms you to become more like Jesus, and he does that by the Spirit. The Spirit transforms the old you in verses 5 through 8. If you look at verse 5, there's a great contrast being made. Two ways to live. Uh, There's no neutral gear. The words here are black and white. That's intentional. There's only two types of people in this world in relation to the Spirit. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. If you're a believer this evening, then you do have the Holy Spirit. You can have assurance that you are in Christ. If you aren't a believer, you don't have the Spirit. Uh, There's no two levels or stages of Christian spirituality. There's no category for what might 
label and call a carnal Christian, that you can confess Jesus as Savior and then you're saved without ever living or caring about a life of obedience to him as Lord, without ever demonstrating any evidence of change or fruit, any change of direction in your life. But because we know justification always leads to sanctification, we know this is true. That here, you're either a saint or you ain't. You're either a genuine believer or you're an oxymoron. And the intention here is, to, is so we might see our need for the Spirit to change us in our daily lives as those who are in Christ. Our only hope for being more and more like Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But Paul kind of goes about explaining this in a, in a roundabout way. He helps us to see our utter need for the Spirit from a specific angle. He basically says, without the Spirit, you can't do anything pleasing to God. Right? Verse, end of verse 8. You can't obey him with a new renewed heart. You just can't. So what's he saying in these verses? First, set your mind. To set your mind has to do with the direction of your thinking, the trajectory of your thoughts, the, what is the agenda or trending direction of your thinking, or what are the ideas shaping the course of your life. When people set their minds on someone or something, they're preferring something. They're inclined towards something. They enjoy something. They're dwelling on something. Desires become the goalpost, uh, goal, goalpost or the singular purpose for which they live until they obtain and fulfill it, that desire. Those who are void of the Holy Spirit in their life only have a one-track mind, one way of thinking about life. They are dead set on the things of the flesh. So what is the flesh? It's not speaking about the physical body here. Other places in the Bible, yes, that may be the case, but Paul's focus is not skin, muscle, fat, that kind of flesh. It's the natural, limited, sinful character of human beings after the fall. Those who remain in Adam but are not in Christ. They cannot obey God from the heart or please God. As verse 7 says, their minds are hostile to God, and they're in that state because they can't submit to God's law due to their inability. Uh, there's a connection between mindset and life. Your mindset sets the course of your life. It affects your actions, your, your direction. You are what you set your mind on, either on the things above or the things of the world. For the unbeliever, it's the things of the world. That's all that they can do because they are not God conscious. They don't live in the fear of God. They essentially live for themselves. They live a life of everything minus God equals everything. They suppress the truth of, about God so they can live without acknowledging his existence. And that's what it means to live in the flesh, to live for the things of the world. The fleeting, the temporary, the ha happiness, fulfillment, uh, whatever that may be, but will never actually satisfy. An earthly mind rather than a spiritual mind, they are dead in their trespasses and sin. But it's not just a preoccupation, an inward bent and preference for things explicitly wicked and evil. It includes setting your mind and living for good things that become ultimate things. And when this happens, it rules over your life. You must have it. It consumes your thoughts. You act in your own power and strength to try to obtain this. Using a bit of J.R. Tolkien imagery, it's the earthly precious that is sought after by unregenerate Gollum in Lord of the Rings, who walks in darkness throughout his life, fixated on one thing, even willing to lose his life in vain 
in a vain way for that one thing, even willing to fall straight to his death in a fiery volcanic mountain to grasp that one thing he seeks, who ultimately meets his eternal doom for his temporary happiness, for his fleeting desire. Those who set their minds on the flesh and live for themselves without God in the equation. What ought to be precious, God their creator, is absent in their thinking and decision-making process. They are seeking and living for that one precious in their life. And even if they get it, they'll want another precious. For their hearts are like idol factories. They fail to give glory to God. Instead, they give glory to their idols and themselves. And as verse 6 says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's the reality of this kind of life, that trajectory, eternal death. And verse 7 gives the reason why their position, their relationship to God is marked by hostility. They are opposed to God, enmity towards God. So it makes sense why it's impossible for unbelievers who do not have faith in Christ, who do not have the Holy Spirit to live righteously. They fall short of the glory of God, hence why they stand condemned before a holy God. So that's the unbeliever's reality. But wait, don't forget Paul is making a contrast. For everything the unbeliever isn't and can't be, Paul speaks about everything the believer is and can be through the Spirit, because believers have the Spirit. Therefore, they have peace and life, peace with God. They have been reconciled to God because they are justified. Life means eternal life being the reality for those who are in Christ. But life speaks of true life today. The good life is live quorum Deo, before the face of God and acknowledgement of that. Finding our joy in living for him and honoring him. Because before Christ, we couldn't please God. But now through the Spirit, we can. Not just we can. That's how everyone who has the Holy Spirit actually lives. It's the mindset of all believers. No longer do they set their mind on the things of the flesh. They are spiritually minded. They're spirit minded. They live according to the Spirit. They have a God consciousness. They have a Christ-loving affection that translates to to not wanting to grieve the Spirit. They are governed and ruled by the Spirit, which seeks to conform them to Christ. So, beloved, since you have the Spirit, how does this transform the old you? How ought we be transformed in our mindset and life in accordance with the Spirit? I can think of a few, a few ways that I have sought to grow in being spirit-minded, in living in accordance with the Spirit, which means growing and yielding to the influence and authority of the Spirit and His Word over my life. Because the Spirit does this by speaking into your life. And I'm not talking about hearing like random voices like, oh, that must be the Spirit, okay? I'm talking about how the Spirit speaks through Scripture. Where God meets you in life where you're at. After all, the Spirit speaks through the Word of God. That's why he's called the spirit of truth. I know for myself at one point, it shifted and changed how I thought about career and vocation. Early on as a new believer, I thought about my job only along the lines of money so I can get stuff. More money equals more comfort, more security. Equals more prestige, respect, attention, attraction. Those were the precious things my renewed heart would still struggle to turn back to. But faith in Jesus introduced a new set of controlling values. 
I have the Holy Spirit. I have God consciousness now. I have a renewed heart to set my mind on the things above, which meant that concerning God in all things, honoring him in all things, which included how I thought about my job and my eight-to-five work. My job was no longer just a means to buy nice tech gear or a new TV. Setting my minds on the Spirit meant storing treasures in heaven, not on earth. Investing for eternity by uh, presently stewarding my paycheck wisely. Living according to the Spirit meant my job providing not just for myself, but to honor God with, provide for others. It meant seeing my job as an opportunity to share the gospel and engage with this Jewish coworker that I had, or another guy who outright rejected Christianity as foolish, given the things he learned in a past comparative religions class during college. Having a mindset on the things of the Spirit means loving God and others through regular giving to the church, which my job provided for to advance the gospel, or supporting missionary family, one missionary family in Malawi, Africa, being generous towards my church family through meals, and then showing mercy to believers in need, like when the death of a loved one procured a high cost for the funeral expenses. A heart for my neighbors, the homeless people I would encounter during my lunch break, who not only, not only hungered for physical food, but I could see they hungered for spiritual food, the gospel. Having a spiritual mindset meant that even though my job would never seem to pay me enough to be able to save up for that home down payment in the city of San Francisco, I learned that this desire must never rule over me and rob me of contentment in Christ. It meant growing in my trust of the words spoken by Christ about how he cares and provides for me always, Matthew 6, 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And this is just a little glimpse how I felt like God was growing me to, to have the mind of the Spirit, the mindset of a believer that's growing, one who has God upon their hearts. Having the Spirit of God means the old you has been made new. The you before Jesus is radically different from the new you. The Spirit now grows you to value the things he values, you now find desirable what he says is desirable, like Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The Spirit shapes your perception about what is truly beautiful and good in life. He grows your love for him and his character, so you dynamically imitate him. Your life begins to vibrantly demonstrate fruit of the Spirit. You begin to, to live and walk in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As Galatians 5.22-23 says, in ways that would have never characterized the old you. Now the anthem in your step is that of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. You seek to please God rather than please others due to a fear of man. Your mindset and your conduct is no longer motivated by seeking affirmation of others. Your identity is not rooted in what other people think about you. It's rooted in Christ. Your mind is no longer captive or dominated by the ideas and views of the world because you take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. These verses teaches us, teach us that we aren't left also to just 
do this on our own, changed by ourselves. These verses in Romans. We aren't told to pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap and go in our own strength to be more like Jesus. Nah. Rather, this is a change marked by what God has done, what he's doing. These verses are written in the indicative mood, not imperative. I was like, oh man, you're like a Greek Jedi. Nah, I actually suck at Greek. He's explaining, not exhorting. Yet it speaks of the Spirit granting us the capacity to please God, to fight the good fight of the faith, the capacity for affection and devotion to Christ. This is a powerful reality for those who have the Spirit. It's meant to give us hope, confidence that we can follow after Christ. He gives us the grace and power to do so. We have the capacity to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Why? Because we have it. Him, the Spirit. And we possess the Spirit in a very special way, which is our third point. The Spirit resides in the new you, verses 9 through 11. I find the the words of verse 9 both hopeful, yet lead me to, to pause. Words that evoke self-reflection, where I'm talking in my head, saying to myself things like, is this true of myself? Is God's spirit really dwelling in me? I mean, after all, verse 9, 10, 11 have this two-letter word we can't escape. If. If. That's conditional language. It's a wonderful reality and statement of fact, but only if you have the spirit of God. It is for those who actually have Christ in them. Yet as we go back to the beginning of verse 9 where Paul says, this is true if the Spirit of God is in you, he's literally, he literally begins, front ends verse 9 with, under the assumption he's speaking to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit before that condition comes. So he's assuming while also leading you to self-reflect upon your own life. You're not like those in verse 8 who cannot please God. Have confidence you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. That old way of life in the flesh where you couldn't please God, where all you could do is continually do evil, those days are gone. That life you lived for your flesh rather than God before you were saved, you're no longer in that season of life. Cheers, beloved, to the new you. And at the core of Paul's words spoken here, the focus isn't that the spirit works to change you and make you more like Jesus. It's more than just enabling and empowerment. Change actually takes place beginning with the core of who you are, your being. Change takes place in close proximity. He changes us from the inside out, our very core, our hearts. And God does this by having his spirit dwell in us. I know you can't see the Spirit, so it's kind of hard to conceptualize, but God is closer and nearer to you than you can imagine. The Holy Spirit is actually in you, and that is where Paul's getting at. The Spirit of God has taken permanent residence in you. We are filled with the divine. Christians and theologians, they they call this doctrinal truth the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, he dwells in me. Conceptually, that sounds all nice and neat, preacher boy. But what's the big deal? 
Well, Paul says if you don't have the Spirit dwelling inside you, it means you don't belong to God. And by drawing these two distinct truths, he's trying to shape our understanding about the Spirit in relation to this new life that we have in Christ. We think the Holy Spirit and his power is a privilege made available to a specific narrow group of special believers. And this kind of thinking leads to discouragement, a wrong trajectory as we live ignorant of what we possess already. Thinking that some have greater access, some believers have greater access to God than we do. And then we begin to form levels or stages of spirituality and perceive it that way. Just a quick illustration. There's one area of life we can sort of think through two, ga- two categories or types of people. It happens when we fly, right? We experience this sort of second-class status when we fly out of LAX or whatever airport that you fly out of. And as soon as you step in, uh, into the airport, what do you see? Two separate lines. Those who have TSA pre and clear, they just breeze right straight through. But for those who don't, Long line that wraps around. But then you get to your gate and you board the plane. What happens? You walk past the first several rows of the airplane seats. Oh, first class. Oh, man, they have larger and more comfortable seats. They have their own TV screens, privacy booths. Look at the special meals, the the blankets and slippers. So that's what it means to be special. I want that too. But reality hits as you move along towards the back of the plane. Economy class, the land of cramped, claustrophobic seats. And you look to the front of the cabin, sometimes separated by a curtain, where first class is just living it up on Clyde and I. I think that's how we sometimes view our relationship with God. And then we compare ourselves with other believers. Does that brother or sister have some special access, some special secret spiritual power on tap that I can get my hands on? I want that, that kind of life. But beloved, this verse shatters that wrong notion. The Holy Spirit isn't the privileged access and power of some Christians. It's a promise for all Christians. And if we're Christians, that means the divine, the third person of the triune God is in me and is in you right now. Beloved, because the Spirit is in you through faith in Christ, you are marked out and special. If he's dwelling in you, it's proof you have been given new life. Your heart is renewed. You're not a second-class Christian. And believers are brought on board as equals. Believers are all on the same page, equal footing, when it comes to access to the Spirit. So Pastor Alan and I don't have an exclusive subscription with the Holy Spirit that you guys don't. And oh, what hope that brings. Because we are inhabited by the divine, because God is in us through and through. We can rightly turn away from discouragement and self-defeat when we fail in the, special, uh, in the spiritual life. What makes the resonance of the Spirit inside you special and unique that ought rightly inspire great hope and confidence in our new life? Why is it? Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So if Christ is a reality for us, the new life we have, despite our physical bodies experience death one day, is so much better. Paul acknowledges that all of us still die in the sense of physical death one day, you know, growing old, um, experiencing disease. We will return to the dust, using Genesis 3.19 language. That's the reality of the curse upon this world because of sin. But physical death doesn't get the last word because we experience new life afterwards if we are in Christ. Though we are bound by these earthly mortal bodies, the Spirit resides in us so that life continues afterwards. Our entrance into life in the age to come for eternity future And so this is supposed to elicit hope, like 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. One day we will be made perfect. Why? Because Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Uh, One way to think of this is when you live with someone else. A new resident moves into your place your apartment, your house. The most pronounced example of this new residence that affects and changes you is in marriage. Leave your father, your parents' house, and living together. Your residence is shared. Someone else is inhabiting your dwelling place. That changes everything. Pretty soon, your house decor, the things you've accumulated change. The interior design begins to look different. With time, the resident's character, the people who live there, their character, choice of paint color, aesthetic style, amount of plants, begins to all reflect the character of the people living there. The posters on the wall at Andy and Zach's place reflects the things that they value and like. What was an empty house or apartment is now remade, renovated, refreshed to reflect those who live there. Not only that, who you live with influences and impacts you. Chris begins to appreciate anime more and more after living with Leighton longer and longer. He grows new affections for eating fast food like McDonald's or Popeye's chicken, like his roommate Corey does all the time. Chris grows a greater appreciation for Japanese food and cooking. The power of influence and change happens in a shared residence. And that's the picture being portrayed here in our passage to highlight the significance of the Spirit residing in me and you. He is renewing us. He is renewing renewing you to reflect the character of Christ. That's what happens when you have the Spirit of Christ. What Christ values in greater degree becomes the things we value to greater degree. So, God is doing a work of renewal, a total renovation, an extreme makeover, Holy Spirit edition, giving new life to us as we journey towards eternal life. And that's the promise and hope offered in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ and resurrected him from his physical burial in the tomb is the same spirit who will resurrect you from physical mortal bodies to these new immortal physical bodies. 
That's why the person of the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life. John Calvin calls the Holy Spirit the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. He is the glue of the gospel that binds our story of redemption together so that eternal life and seeing Jesus face to face comes true for you. We can't be separated from this because the Spirit permanently lives with us, in you. Remember chapter 7, the struggle with indwelling sin, doing the things you very much hate? Verse 11 of chapter 8 is the bulwark of hope for you. The Spirit's power in us is why we rejoice, why we hope, why we praise, why we worship with an eye towards eternity. I would like to end our time in God's word this evening in prayer together. And I'll be reading for our prayer time a Puritan prayer, prayer song called Blessed Spirit of the King by Stuart Townsend. Um, so will you please close your eyes with me and pray. Blessed Spirit of the King, of grace and love the author, work repentance deep within and bend me at your altar. Melt my heart with majesty, then show my ruined self to me. Teach me to, to more clearly see your might and will to save me. Here I place without reserve my soul and faith and meekness, trusting in Christ's power and love to flourish in my weakness. Cause my days on earth to be, through time and through eternity, a trophy of his victory, a monument to mercy. Teach me to behold my God and trust his power to save me. Arms outstretched in constant love, whose strength will never fail me. Help me to commune with him, depend and follow after him, that through my life his peace will reign and joy be my companion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.